Welcome to the Common Good Hour, hosted by Drew Reynolds, Roger Zaclupe, and Carrie Rebens. In this podcast, you'll learn about the ways nonprofit and social sector professionals are tackling the big problems of our time so you can improve your practice and advance the common good in your community. Hi, everyone. I'm Drew Reynolds. And I'm Roger Zaclupe. And I'm Carrie Rebens. Thank you for taking time out of your day to join us as we talk about some of the big challenges facing the social sector and interview guests who share their knowledge about how to make a difference through their work. On today's show, we'll begin with Callan Brown, Program Director at the Nonprofit Center for Northeast Florida. Callan works with many different nonprofit organizations and will discuss how nonprofits are navigating the landscape of the pandemic and still working to advance their missions. We'll then continue with Brad Furco, a health communications specialist who will give you a framework for how to think about and communicate as an organization while in the midst of the biggest public health crisis of our lifetimes. His recommendations are informative and will really help nonprofit leaders looking to step back from the day-to-day to think critically about how they are communicating and sharing their message during this crisis. But before we dive in, we wanted to take a few minutes to introduce ourselves. So let me be like a BC boy and pass the mic on to Drew. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Roger. So again, my name is Drew Reynolds. Um, I am a principal consultant at Common Good Data Consulting and also serve as program director at Child Spring International. I'm a social worker by training and love being engaged in the nonprofit and social sector. I live in Atlanta, uh, Georgia, with my wife, Susan, who's a professor at Emory, and my three amazing daughters who are uh, five, three, and just a little less than one, trying to navigate life during a pandemic. And recently, actually, which is kind of funny, we just got a karaoke machine and have started doing Frozen and Disney songs on the porch karaoke, which has been probably the delight of the pandemic right now, living at home and social distancing with three kiddos. We're going to need to hear some audio clips of that at some point. Oh, I think we can probably record some of those. <laughs> I do want to on some of them, too. I mean, yeah, because there's like parts, you know, like where there's like maybe two or three voices. And so I try to harmonize so that they can see the leads. <laughs> That's great. I'm Carrie Revens. I'm a community health researcher. I'm also a health educator um, by background and experience. Um, I'm a consultant at Common Good Data, and I'm also the director of research and evaluation at Camino Community Center. I live in Charlotte with my husband and my two dogs. They're both pit bulls. Um, their names are Irish and Noda. And my husband and I actually also have a baby on the way. So we will have our first child coming November 2020. Um, Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. Yay. That I makes us uncles. <laughs> yeah. We've got their uncles or tios. There you go. <laughs> Espanol. Tio um, Roger. Tio Roger and Tio Drew. Um, we don't know yet if it's a boy or girl, so we don't have names or anything like that. So right now we're just calling it Baby Revens, or for short, we call them B-Revs. B-Revs. <laughs> That's how we refer to the baby. Yeah. <laughs> That's All a right, good name. so I will now pass the mic on to Roger. So I am Roger Seclupe, and I'm so thrilled to be on this podcast as a co-host with two amazing people, uh, Drew Reynolds and Carrie Revens. So I am a social worker um, by trade and by heart. Um, I am an educator, and I am an advocate as well. So similar similar to to Drew and Carrie, we, we all three share a passion um, in in helping other people and helping communities. I'm also a clinical assistant professor and the BSW program director for the School of Social Work at UNC Charlotte, uh, here in Charlotte, North Carolina. 
I have three kiddos, uh, Hannah, who is 16, Matthew, who is 13, and, and Michael, who is 10. And, uh, and they are amazing, amazing young kids. Uh, they, they give my wife Paige and I, um, a run for our money sometimes, but we, we all enjoy ourselves. Uh, I am in the process of completing a tree house that has been under construction for the past three years, I believe. So, um, my kids during this pandemic said, Hey dad, this is probably a great time to finish that tree house. So um, we're hoping <laughs> to have it. It's been a long time. We're hoping to have it done hopefully by the end of, uh, next week. And, uh, and also we're going to try to put a zip line. Um, it's, it's about a 12, it's about 12 feet up in the air. The tree house is. So, um, so we'll see, hopefully I won't come out of that with uh, any broken anything. So, um, I live in Charlotte and, uh, um, like I mentioned earlier, just really, really fortunate to be, um, friends with, with Drew and Carrie, two great and amazing individuals. So while we live in Charlotte and Atlanta, um, and are all engaged in different areas of work, what kind of brings us together actually is that we were all at UNCC at the same time. Roger, um, is still a professor there. I am a former professor or assistant professor at UNC Charlotte and Carrie got her PhD at UNC Charlotte. And so that's kind of what has brought us together. And we've all been involved in a number of different projects, including one that started about two years ago. I remember I was walking down by the student union at UNC Charlotte talking to Roger. And he turns to me and he says, hey, Drew, maybe we should start a podcast. And we were like, all right, let's do it. And the week later, we had uh, a meeting down at the Wine Vault over in University City. And uh, we we were really excited because we had gotten a name for our original podcast, The Helping Hands of Our Community, which you can still find on Spotify. And but the problem was that after we had chosen the name, we found out like three days later that somebody else took the URL <laughs> that we needed for that podcast um, and started their own Helping Hands podcast at the same time as we were, which was one of the craziest we things. So we were year. so, yeah, I remember that we were, I was devastated. We were debating. <laughs> We were, yeah, we were debating on whether or not we should do it or not that, that, that evening at the wine vault, shout out to the wine vault in Charlotte, North Carolina. And, um, I don't know what, I don't, I don't know what kept us, but we were like, let's think about it. And then like, yeah, a couple of days later, you're like, Raj, you're never going to believe this. And, uh, <laughs> but you know what? It, it, it was for the best. Uh, it happened the way it happened. And, um, really grateful that we got an opportunity to start that up. We met. A lot of interesting individuals, folks that we've already were connected with, but we we took a deeper dive into the work that they were they were providing for our community here. So um, I do feel like that was a, an awesome experience, which led to the platform for what we're doing now. That's right. And so we learned a ton from our first podcast project, and we decided we wanted to take the next step here, and we created here the Common Good Hour. And it's going to be a very similar format, but with a couple of different tweaks and changes that we think are going to be um, uh, great for our listeners. And so we're going to try to really focus on bringing many of the social sector's best thinkers into conversation with the day-to-day -day practice. So people who are out there doing the work um, can talk about that and share what they're learning, sharing what their experiences are, so that we all can continue to grow and to learn from one another in this field, building new skills and perspectives that will help us all advance the common good. And interestingly enough, I would say about what do you what do you think, Drew? Maybe f six weeks ago or so, right? At, almost at the little bit of the beginning of of, of COVID nineteen is when we started really hammering this. Uh, hey, we we really got something good here. We can we can start bridging the experiences that 
that everybody is having right now, having to adjust and, and, and sort of reset their lives, not only from a personal level, but from a professional level and then from a, you know, uh, uh, social sector level as well. So I really am really, uh, excited about, um, not only this first season, but everything that's going to matriculate after this. Yeah, that's right. And I feel like there's something kind of jarring about our current world right now with this pandemic. And I know for me personally, I feel like whenever you have your routines and your your day-to-day kind of upset, it always forces me to kind of sit back a little bit and kind of reflect on where things are. And uh, this podcast project, I think, is going to be a great opportunity for us to do that and for many of the people who are working right now to have a moment of reflection on their practice and think about ways they can do things differently and better and recognizing that people are are suffering quite a bit from this, whether it's economic challenges or health challenges or otherwise, um, but recognizing that we want to continue to improve and try to respond to to meet those needs that are emerging. Yeah, so um, I'm really excited to be a part of this podcast as well. And um, Drew and Roger actually interviewed me on the first on the Helping Hands podcast. So I was there as an interviewee. And then at one point, I got to be a special guest co-host. Um, and that was really exciting and fun. So they asked me to join them in this and this new podcast. I'm really excited. So to give you guys some of the details, um, we'll be doing two interviews per week, focusing on one theme each week. Episodes will be released every other week on Monday, so you can start your week off right. Um, and we anticipate that each episode will be around one hour, which makes it perfect for your commute, your lunch hour, your workout, um, whatever that one hour may be. And of course, once things get back to normal, you'll be doing maybe more of your more normal routines. And, uh, you know, we're really excited about the folks who have agreed to, to participate um, on this podcast. Uh, we have professionals. We have leaders. Um, we have we have medical doctors. Uh, we have social workers. Um, we have a filmmaker. I mean, it's it's just really exciting uh, that we can we can connect with folks who are who are very passionate about the work they're doing, but also what what they're doing to make an impact um, on our society. And along with these incredible interviews that we have lined up, we'd greatly appreciate it if you subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform. And remember to rate and leave a review of our podcast because this helps our podcast launch. Instructions on how to rate and review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify are available on our webpage at www.commongooddata.com slash podcast. All right. So let's go ahead and get started with Drew's interview with Callan Brown. Everyone in the nonprofit and social sector is reeling from the effects of the coronavirus pandemic. We wanted to start our conversation by exploring how different nonprofit organizations are adapting and working to continue advancing their missions, despite the circumstances. To do this, we've invited our guest, Callan Brown, who currently serves as the program director at the Nonprofit Center of Northeast Florida. She is responsible for a portfolio of initiatives to strengthen the capacity of the nonprofit center's members through programs, trainings, and workshops, and leads the center's largest annual event, the Nonprofit Works Conference. She has a strong passion for the arts and currently teaches dance to adults at Dance Trance Fitness in downtown Jacksonville. Callan, welcome to the Common Good Hour. Thank you, Drew. I appreciate it. I'm glad to be here. Awesome. Thanks. So as we start off, can you share just a little bit about your work and why you chose a career in the nonprofit sector? 
Yeah, sure. Um, so I guess probably like most people, I kind of grew up um, as a student volunteering. And I went to the Florida State University originally to study art history because I just really loved um, going to my local arts museum, the Cummer Museum in Jacksonville, Florida. And I really envisioned myself um, working at a museum one day. And while I was there, I got involved with an AmeriCorps program called Jumpstart, where we would work with children in local Head Start programs and you know, these children are um, really living in poverty and it was just super eye-opening for me. I remember that time I first heard the statistic that, you know, for the majority of students that can't read proficiently by the time they're in third grade, they're more likely to either drop out of school, end up in jail or in, on welfare. Um, and that about 70% of America's inmates actually can't read above a fourth grade level. I was absolutely shocked. And I knew right then and there that, I wasn't necessarily so interested in working for um, just an arts organization, but that I really wanted to be involved in advocacy and policy somehow. And so when I kind of started to think about that, I knew that I needed more of a background in management and when I was kind of like looking at the options that were before me, there was, you know, a traditional MBA. And I was like, no, that's not right. I don't want to get my MBA. Um, but then I learned about the MPA program at University of North Florida and that they had this concentration in nonprofit management. And I was like, okay, that's what I need to do. I need to learn more about what it means to actually work for a nonprofit. What does management for a nonprofit look like? And how could I, you know, get a job that really creates impact for the sector? So after doing that, I was fortunate to be able to start working for a number of smaller nonprofit organizations. And of course, in that in that course at UNF, we heard all about this uh, great center called the Nonprofit Center of Northeast Florida. And I knew that one day I had to I had to end up there. I had to work there to really create the kind of impact that I was looking for for my community. So I found the Nonprofit Center, and what we exist to do is we exist to connect, strengthen, and advocate for a strong nonprofit community. And really for us, what that means is that we believe that a vibrant and inclusive community is really strengthened by and supportive of a healthy, high-impact uh, nonprofit sector. So just a couple of the things that we do at the center is that we are we are a membership organization. We're an MSO. And so we support our local nonprofits by providing services, programs. Um, we also do a ton of advocacy work, both locally and at the state level. Um, we provide like our local government, our civic and business leaders insights about what's going on at the sector and help um, the community to kind of make smart decisions that really, you know, support support the public and the good work that so many nonprofits are doing. So, yeah, that's just a little bit about the Nonprofit Center. But it's been it's been such a great pleasure to work there. And I'm almost at four years now. Awesome. Thank you so much for that. And you know, I think, you know, speaking to, as you described, this opportunity to be kind of as a hub or in a center, um, having so many conversations with nonprofits every day, I was really excited to talk to you because, as you know, you know, the sector is facing all kinds of challenges right now. And so I'm curious from your perspective and what you're seeing, what are some of the key needs, whether it's, I mean, certainly funding is going to be there for many, um, but also otherwise that, that nonprofits are, are sharing with you right now um, in the wake of the pandemic? 
Yeah, so of course we're hearing a lot about um, funding. That is a huge need because, you know, um, I was actually listening to uh, a webinar that the Florida Nonprofit Alliance put on the other day around um, the survey data that they've been collecting. So of course there's tons of surveys out there right now for nonprofits and the impacts they're feeling. And, you know, of about 2,000 organizations that have replied to several of these surveys out there, the majority are really experiencing high to moderate impact of, um, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, the majority of nonprofits are experiencing, experiencing loss of revenue either due to cancellation, cancellation of fundraising events or loss of, um, services that they aren't able to provide, um, you know, because of the, the closure of, um, you know, public spaces and that type of thing. And then, of course, that there's increased demand for a lot of services. So, of course, um, you know, many nonprofits just aren't able to actually keep up with that demand. There's no one nonprofit that's ever going to be able to to help all of the people out there that need help, unfortunately. So while funding is a big issue, um, what we're also hearing is that really the, the needs of direct service providers. Um, you know, we have like an example here locally, uh, the Youth Crisis Center was sharing with us that you know, we can't stay shuttered. We can't be closed because our services are, you know, clients that have gone through trauma and abuse. And what we're hearing right now is that so many more people are experiencing, unfortunately, additional trauma and additional, um, you know, they're being subjected to more um, environments for abuse when they're being forced to stay at home. So it's it's really hard when you have direct service providers that really can't stop the work that they're doing. They have to be out there, but they unfortunately are not, you know, able to receive the all of the PPE that they might need, or they don't don't have the um, support that they were traditionally used to, such as, um, you know, volunteers, there's a huge loss of volunteers right now. What we've been hearing from like the food banks is that um, the majority of volunteers that actually help out at food banks are that 65 plus uh, category. So just right there, the number of folks that are not able to go out and actually fulfill fulfill those needs of like packing food boxes and getting them out to people. I mean, how do the how do the food banks, if they have all the food in the world, if they can't um, get it into people's hands, that makes it a really big issue. Um, so really, I mean, the food issue itself, that has been a huge need. United Way shared with us that for the past um, four or five weeks that the majority of calls that they're receiving is around food access and they're receiving upwards of 500 calls a week. So just these issues for nonprofits of accessing food, getting the volunteers, um, you know, canceling programs that, you know, would otherwise service people. I mean, there's just, there's kind of a, an all-encompassing impact that's happening right now that's really making it hard for nonprofits to do the work. I think those are some really great examples. And it speaks to, I think, a fundamental challenge. The nonprofit sector is one that is just so dependent on face-to-face interaction, whether it's fundraising at your gala or whether it's providing direct services and at a food bank or at a youth crisis center. And so it makes it really difficult to be able to engage and support that mission in these difficult times. So I'm curious, you know, from your perspective too, you're, you're hearing all these different kind of challenges across the sector. Um, what are some of the things that um, the nonprofit center is doing to help support some of these nonprofits, recognizing that there's limitations on everything you can do? Um, but what are some of those steps that you guys are, are excited about? 
Yeah. So I would say one of the very first things that we did, um, which might sound silly now in retrospect, was that um, we actually did go remote like uh, pretty immediately. Um, we definitely view ourselves as, um, you know, a role model for the sector. And so, you know, as soon as we were able to, um, I believe by March 16th, we were fully remote um, and we, you know, put that messaging out there to our members and we encouraged them to do the same. I mean, one thing that we were hearing um, from one local um, executive director was she was extremely angry at those initial weeks of um, the the news coming out in early March and was not getting from leadership at the top the um, kind of okay to go ahead and to pull these measures to go remote to social distance because of the impact that it was having on on her seniors. She was an executive director of a senior center and she's like, you know, they're telling me it's okay to still have my seniors come out to these programs in the masses and, you know, are we are we just signing them up for, you know, for illness and for death. So, you know, we're, we're trying to be role models in that way. Um, we also have really been, you know, expanding our, our advocacy and really, um, the weekly calls that we've been having. We've had, um, a call every Friday at 10 a.m. around the, the weekly, you know, COVID-19, like what's going on in the sector. And then just kind of have like a debrief of that. We've been bringing in people that are experts around things like the PPP, how to apply for that. What does it mean once you're receive it? What do you do with those funds? Um, we've been convening the local um, the local funding sector or the local funders in our community to ask them about what they're doing. Um, as far as uh, locally, we have something called the First Coast Relief Fund. So we've been really um, a crucial part of that of, you know, helping our funders to connect and to identify and raise awareness about the, the needs that are out there and what nonprofits are saying. Um, we've also as along with the Florida Nonprofit Alliance, they had a, a letter out there to, you know, help secure nonprofit relief and as part of the CARES Act. And we were, you know, a big hand in getting that out to our members and making sure that everybody, you know, was signing on and sharing that with their boards and making sure that people understood what that, what that relief could really mean for individual nonprofits and for the sector as a whole. Um, so really just trying to do our part in offering as much um, assistance we can to the sector, but then also um, doing kind of individual acts as far as like our staff, we all kind of play a role in different task force. Um, I'll say like for myself personally, I'm part of this Food for Clay County task force. And that's just a way for us to help kind of stay connected with our neighboring counties because we do serve the the five county region here in Northeast Florida. And, you know, what does it look like for Duval County versus Clay County, which is much smaller compared to Duval. And, you know, what support and resources do they need to kind of get the word out there and get coordination around getting food delivery to seniors and to youth and to those that are, that are really suffering. So it's been, it's been a um, really coordinated effort, I would say, but we are just trying to, you know, to be, to be the conveners that we are for the sector and to just say that we are, you know, we're here to help and we're trying in every way that we can to get, you know, experts in front of them and to get resources in the hands that people that need it the most. Yeah, I think that these are all great examples of different things that are going on. And I think one of the things that I'm noticing a lot is, you know, challenges with um, the PPP, as you mentioned, as a part of the CARES Act, these SBA loans that many nonprofits are applying for to help, uh, to receive some of that relief and to help keep um, their their staff employed in many cases when they're running into challenges with traditional fundraising or other methods that they've used to to run their nonprofit. Um, and I know that I think things will probably change, you know, as people are listening to this podcast and moving forward, it kind of changes day to day. 
Um, but what I've noticed is that I think it's particularly challenging for nonprofits to apply for loans like those because they have to go through a few additional hurdles, whether it's, you know, gaining board approval and support who are often working on a voluntary basis or um, trying to manage uh, employees who might be categorized in different types of ways. Um, have you found a similar experience that nonprofits are running into different kind of challenges with that SBA loan? Yeah, it, it it's true. And, and there's also, um, you know, instances where we have had um, nonprofits saying to us that they, they use, um, you know, a lender that doesn't, that doesn't have the ability to go, you know, to, to do the SBA lending. So that's made it challenging. Um, people are really saying there's a lot of confusion around the PPP, especially um, once they've received the funds, kind of what are the rules as far as tracking this additional funding? And, you know, what does it mean? Um, for instance, we've heard things from people saying like, oh, you know, we have um, some like part-time lower wage um, employees or ones that we consider full-time, but they are low-wage because of the hours that they work and the way that they work. So if they're actually receiving more funding while, you know, on unemployment, how do you kind of balance that ethically between, you know, offering the the PPP and having them to come back to work where they could actually be more at risk for exposing themselves or, you know, reporting them to unemployment that they're saying that they don't want to come back to work, but really it's just a matter of their own, you know, personal protection. Um, so there's, there's a lot of um, interesting, uh, I would say, just kind of misconceptions, but then also just uh, a lot, a lot of a confusion around how the PPP works. And, you know, unfortunately, early on, I think during that first round, like, thank goodness, there's been the second round um, available funding. But during that first round, we know so many locally of our nonprofits were not able to get in on it because they found out about it, you know, kind of too late. And a lot of nonprofits actually had this, almost this feeling of that they couldn't apply for it. Like maybe it wasn't for them. It was only for small businesses and nonprofits didn't fall within that category. But that, you know, nonprofits also have this interesting sense of like, uh, we, they kind of personally disqualify themselves as if, you know, oh, well, you know, we're this sector that relies on, you know, charitable contributions and uh, grants. And uh, it's interesting to hear that, you know, some nonprofits are like, that's why we have an endowment or, you know, our, our reserves so that we don't actually have to apply for something like this when it's like, no, if it's made available, you know, please apply for it. That's been a big thing for us is just getting the word out there that you can apply for it and you don't have to look at, you know, your, your reserve as like as something to fall back on only in a case like this when there is just such a crisis and that if the funding is available, please, we want you to go out there and try to take it. And I think that's so true that it comes up as like a, a sense in the nonprofit sector that they're different from or, or, or somehow separate from, you know, the regular operations of, of business, of, of government or whatever. And I think it's really interesting in that our, that we should be recognizing and, and acknowledging and and giving credence to the idea that nonprofit employs lots of people. In fact, I think it might be as many or more employed in the nonprofit sector as there are employed in manufacturing in this country. And yet when we think about jobs and employment and keeping people employed, um, it's not often the nonprofit down the street that you think of as an organization that needs to keep open um, for your community to succeed. So I'm curious too, um, you know, you've been working with a bunch of different nonprofits on negotiating these challenges. What are some examples or things that you've seen of how nonprofits are being innovative in responding or adjusting their programs or services or their mission um, in light of social distancing? 
Yeah. Um, I mean, to me, it's really no surprise that nonprofits are innovating. They've kind of always been innovating. Um, there's a number of examples. For The first one I can think of, of course, is um, Rethreaded, a local nonprofit that provides um, jobs for survivors of human trafficking. And they make a lot of like handmade goods and products. And they actually, you know, originally had this amazing partnership with Southwest Airlines where they would get um, like old uh you know, seat cushion fabric, and they would use that to like make goods. Well, now they actually, when all of this happened, they received a new partnership with St. Vincent's, um, the, an organization, a health organization down here where they are making, um, protective masks for care, caregivers for St. Vincent's. So, you know, they kind of shifted their operations totally. They saw, you know, the need and the demand for, um, protective wear. And they were like, okay, you know, if we have these partners, we have the, we have the workers, we have the ability to make these masks, we're going to do it. So that's, you know, the first thing they did was kind of shift to that. Um, of course, with the the food issues that I was speaking of earlier, you know, of, there's always an amazing um, uh, response when it comes to things like that, right? Like basic needs, um, you know, kind of Maslow's hierarchy. Um, but Feeding Northeast Florida uh, recently went into a new partnership with Eldersource and Aging True, two um, senior serving agencies down here. And they're, you know, helping to deliver food to senior facilities um, through an, a private also partnership with Elite Parking. So just thinking kind of outside the box of not just nonprofits partnering with one another, but again, nonprofit with for profits um, to make this happen. And then they also established a separate partnership with Florida Blue, where they have workers that are at Florida Blue's um, conference campus that are no longer, you know, able to perform their daily duties because the campus is closed to outside visitors, but they have the workers at Florida Boo making hot meals that then they're able to repackage and deliver to other nonprofit agencies in need that are directly serving clients. So that's been awesome to see. And then of course, uh, just with like fundraisers, like fundraising, of course, is such a big thing as far as what are people doing now that everything is virtual. Well, we've seen a number of organizations locally turning to the virtual event. So uh, the Jacksonville Humane Society just recently had their MUT March, which they did entirely virtually, and they've surpassed their fundraising goal, which was awesome to see. That was on April 11th, and Jasmine just had their Strides for Pride, um, and they surpassed their fundraising goal as well, but again, just doing a virtual stride instead of having it um, in person. So it's kind of interesting to see how nonprofit are adapting, but it is possible. And, you know, we are a super innovative sector. So we are seeing how, you know, people are just coming together to say, okay, you know, if this is what we have to do, then, you know, the pivot word, that's, you know, such a big word right now, but that's what we have to do. We have to pivot. And so people are finding a way. Those are such great examples. And I love how what you can see so many different organizations coming together and to collaborate on how to, um, whether it's one organization who now has a surplus of, of workers or volunteers who, who can't do their regular work, but maybe they can help another organization in volunteering to help support their mission. And so they're also, I think, um, in what you had described and what I've seen too, lots of opportunities for nonprofits to collaborate um, during this kind of crazy time. So, so thank you for those examples. And I'm curious about um, you know, looking back at all of this, if you were to look back 
at this maybe a year from now, if we're in May of 2021, which is kind of a hard time to imagine, I think. Yeah. Um, you know, it's certainly there's so much that we won't necessarily know about what will happen between now and then. But what do you think are going to be the things that the sector learns out of this process or how do we or how will we have changed as a result of this pandemic? Yeah. So, you know, I was thinking a lot about this question. Um, I read from Ruth McCambridge with the Nonprofit Quarterly that she recently noted that during the last recession, um, you know, nonprofit, the sector overall, like fared pretty well, but the communities we served were actually worse off. So it's interesting as we think about this question, how, you know, we kind of have to balance this idea of, our our businesses, our business structure as nonprofits, um, the the survival of them, right? Versus what is our what are the actual populations that we're trying to serve? How how are they faring? So when I think about a year from now, um, you know, for nonprofits, really the question or what they should be learning from this is how are we planning for the next pandemic, right? The next um, the next recession or the next hurricane, if you're here in Florida, how are we planning for basically the worst to happen? And, you know, forecasting is so important. Of course, no one likes to talk about, you know, financials and kind of the boring stuff that the board has to deal with. But that is kind of what we're hearing a lot right now is that, honestly, what you have to think about at a time of, you know, this crazy pandemic and change is that really kind of protecting your financial position is the number one priority. And of course, while that is in service of your mission, I mean, what that means is thinking about things, you know, like our our demand, if there's, you know, demand pressure sensitivity, you know, what are our services, our events, our programs, the activities that we have now, um, is that really, is that really the right structure for them? Or do we need to be rethinking them? Um, do we have, you know, ones that we have a lot of control over versus ones that are maybe a little more out of our control and that offer more risk to our organization? So kind of just thinking also about short-term versus long-term planning, I think it will be important for nonprofit boards to especially have a handle over this idea of, yes, everybody has an annual budget, but annual budgets are kind of blown out of the water right now. So how do we kind of get to a point where we can really forecast and look at, you know, short-term budgeting as in, you know, what's going on for the next 30 to 90 days? That's what most nonprofits are thinking about right at this moment is how are we going to make it through the next 30 to 90 days and what is our positioning maybe once we get out of that? And then long-term kind of rethinking about our business model overall and are we still, are we still, Right. And how we're offering our, our programs or services. But I think another point to that is also just the, the convening power. Like when I think about, um, the way that specifically back to the food issue, but it's been just such a huge part of everything we've been doing with lately. Um, when I think about the food issue in Duval County, Duval, it was really lucky to have formed over, over two years ago now, um, when the the last major hurricane hit us, um, they formed the COAD or the community um, organizations coming together, you know, to uh, help during disaster. And having had that formed a couple of years back, it's made tackling future um, 
pandemics or hurricanes, honestly, so much easier because that convening power was has already been established. And it's really just made it an easy way to kind of identify and to communicate, you know, what resources are out there? How do we kind of coordinate uh, nonprofit resources? And then how do we disseminate that information and do everything we can as, you know, kind of a volunteer community of nonprofits together to get out there and get the work done? And the reason I mention that is just because I noticed in another county that I work with that they had never had something like that. And so with the pandemic happening, they're now in this process of not to say, you know, scramble, but unfortunately they are. They're kind of scrambling to be really reactive and to, you know, address the situation as the emergency that it is. But they haven't had kind of that prior um, convening power uh, you know, in the past, the way Duval has. So, you know, they're kind of starting from the bottom right now and trying to develop something where it would be, you know, a coordinated group of nonprofits and for-profits and faith-based groups coming together to solve this issue. But now that they're doing that, I just really hope that, you know, our sector going forward, that they will take measures to kind of keep that going and to keep it up um, so that, you know, the next time, you know, unfortunately, something like this happens that, you know, it's not kind of scrambling to pull something together, but that it's already been established and that there's, you know, a process and a framework in place for kind of getting that coordinated response together. Callan, thank you so much for this great conversation. And thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And again, that was Callan Brown, Program Director at the Nonprofit Center of Northeast Florida. You can follow the Nonprofit Center of Northeast Florida on Twitter at Nonprofit NEFL. Thanks for listening. So we hope you really enjoyed that interview with Callan Brown as she walked us through some of the things that different nonprofits are experiencing right now during the pandemic and how different organizations are responding. And some of you might be thinking, you know, what is our next step as an organization? How are we going to open up our doors again if you've been closed for a while? Or how are we going to communicate our message and our mission when we are sort of in this pandemic world. And so to do that, we thought we'd bring on somebody who's an expert in health communications, Brad Furco. And so here is Brad in our next interview. Brad, welcome to the Common Good Hour. Thanks for having me, Drew. All right, so let's dive right in. So we're clearly in a public health emergency and crisis. Can you share a little about what makes communication unique during a crisis? Sure. So a crisis can create three general threat categories for an organization. The first is public safety. The second is financial loss. And the third is reputation loss. All of these threats are interrelated um, and they should be addressed sequentially in the order I listed them. Um, an effective crisis management framework is going to approach each of those problems uniquely and then sort of circle back together and make sure that all three solutions for those problems are aligned. So I was trained in crisis and emergency risk communication, which is sort of a framework that you can attach yourself to to effectively communicate during a crisis. And it has six main principles. So the first one is to be first. Um, quickly sharing information about a disease outbreak can help stop the spread of disease and prevent the um, prevent and reduce illness and even death, which for a crisis like COVID-19 is very relevant. The second is to be right. Um, 
accuracy establishes credibility. And right now, institutions like nonprofits or government agencies, right now, credibility is a major concern. There's so many unknowns about COVID-19, um, and everyone wants to have that information, but some of it just isn't here yet. So it's important to highlight information gaps and be honest um, and credible with your audience. The third one is be credible, right? You want to make sure that nobody feels like they have a reason to doubt what you're saying. If you don't know the information, direct your stakeholders to someone who might, um, or just admit that you don't have the answers right now, but you're working to find them. The fourth is to express empathy. A disease outbreak can cause fear and disrupt daily lives. Lesser known or emerging diseases like COVID-19 can cause more uncertainty and anxiety. So acknowledging what people are feeling and their challenges shows that you're considering their perspective when you give your recommendations. The fifth is to promote action. In an infectious disease outbreak, public understanding of action and disease prevention is key to stopping the spread. It's why you see messages like flatten the curve or 30 days to slow the spread circulating on social media or in the news. These tidbits of actionable items that an everyday person can do in their daily life, um, those are the things that are really going to make a difference on the macro scale when you're thinking about population health. And the sixth is to show respect. Respectful communication, just like in a conversation, is important when people feel vulnerable. Respectful communication promotes cooperation and active listening. So that's sort of an overview of crisis and emergency risk communication strategies that people might be able to use. Brad, thanks so much for that overview. So thinking about nonprofits who maybe don't see themselves as public health communicators, um, but are kind of forced to because they are in this situation where, uh, you know, COVID-19 has taken over every aspect of our lives. What do people, what should people be thinking about as how can they apply these kind of public health crisis emergency framework? to their own work in their own area of practice. You know, Drew, you're absolutely right. And one of my favorite quotes from a professor in college was that everyone is a pr practitioner of public health, whether they like it or not. Um, so even if you don't feel like you're the most well-versed in crisis communication, you can be an effective crisis communicator. So I would say some strategies that... Um, nonprofit stakeholders can practice um, in their daily operations and um, in communicating with either their clients or their stakeholders or their employees um, include things like keeping messages consistent. If you have a consistent message and your organization can stay on message, um, you can pretty effectively disseminate the information you want to get out. Another thing is that is sort of a common hiccup, I would say, in crises is don't over reassure. Sometimes if you try to seem like you're empathizing, you're not actually empathizing with another person. I mentioned earlier the importance of active listening. Usually once you've reassured someone once or twice, they don't need to be reassured again. Um, and active listening will tell you that. Um, generally, people are going to come on board and acknowledge the uncertainty that comes with a crisis. Another would be to express wishes. So, for example, I talked about acknowledging when you don't have answers. Say something like, I wish I had the answers. Perhaps I could point you towards someone who does. If you're honest with people and just let them know what information you do have and express willingness to help them find the information they need, chances are they're going to be appreciative of that. Another thing is 
if you personally can't help them find the answers, you can explain the process in place to find the answers. So that might look like directing them to their local public health agency or the World Health Organization or another organization that, you know, has expertise in public health crisis communication or, you know, collecting information for the public uh, to consume uh, during a crisis like COVID-19. Another thing you can do is acknowledge people's fear. You know, it's kind of a given that people are going to have heightened stress and anxiety around a public health crisis like this. So just letting it be known that that is something that people are experiencing and might modulate uh, the way people interact with each other is a really important kind of place to operate from when you're having conversations with people. The other is give people things to do and ask more of people by sharing risk. I think this is maybe one of the most overlooked things in crisis communication. People can tolerate a pretty considerable amount of risk, especially if the risk is voluntary. So if you acknowledge risk and its severity and its complexity, and you go into the conversation being honest about that, you can ask the best of a person and ask them to walk with you to bear the risk during the emergency so you can find solutions and not be operating from a point of fear or maybe um, haphazardness. Thanks for some of those great strategies there, Brad. As many nonprofits are starting to think about how they're going to communicate with their audience, with the people they serve, whether it's through direct service and practice or just even to their own staff, they're starting to ask the big question, how do we start working again? How do we open back up? So what are some key things to think about for making and ensuring a healthy workplace when nonprofits are opening their doors? Definitely. So as a nonprofit, you're going to want to focus your efforts where they'll do the most good to make sure that your team can continue to fill its mission. You can do this, I would say, in three main takeaways. So reduce your, your transmission of COVID-19 in your workplace, maintain healthy business operations, and keep your work environment healthy. So the first one looks like destigmatizing staying at home when you're sick, or if an employee has to stay home to take care of a sick family member. There should be no stigma attached to staying at home in your workplace because staying at home is what's going to keep people healthy. It may look like absenteeism in sort of a traditional workplace setting, but during a crisis like COVID-19, it can actually save lives if people are staying home from work. You can also maintain healthy business operations by being flexible with sick leave and other supportive policies and establishing social distancing policies in the workplace to make sure that even when you're back in the office, people are sort of minimizing their face-to-face -face contact or um, the proximity that they might be uh, within each other in the office. And you can also make sure that your essential functions are being managed even if absenteeism spikes during at any point during the pandemic. You want to make sure that your organization can function on a skeleton crew and get done the day-to-day -day jobs that help you fulfill your mission, even under a worst-case scenario. The third I mentioned was keep your work environment healthy. So do things like optimize ventilation in the workspace to improve airflow or support respiratory etiquette with hand sanitizers or tissues or no-touch receptacles for throwing away trash or used tissues and routinely disinfect surfaces. And these solutions are going to look different in every workplace. So it's important that you tailor those solutions to what's going to work best for your team so you can accomplish your mission. Brad, thanks so much for some of these tips. I know that many organizations thinking about how to 
approach this crisis and still live out their mission are going to benefit so much from thinking about how to communicate during a crisis, but also how to um, ask those deep questions of how to ensure a healthy workplace. So thanks for joining us. Of course. Thanks for having me. And again, that was Brad Furco. You can follow him on Twitter at Brad Furco, B-R-A-D-F-I-R-C-H-O-W. The Common Good Hour is produced by Common Good Data. To access the show notes and learn more about our speakers and guests, navigate to www.commongooddata.com slash podcast. Be sure to like us on Facebook and subscribe, rate, and review our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Spark dialogue with us on Twitter. You'll find us at the handle at Common Good Hour. We look forward to continuing our conversation with you.